News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, we've been talking a lot about rising crime, not just in Charlotte, but kind of all over the place, and uh, came across a piece uh, by Christine McDonald. It was down in the Orlando uh, Sentinel, and uh, she writes that every 68 seconds, someone in America is sexually assaulted, and more than 97% of perpetrators get off scot-free. Uh, I want to welcome Christine to the program. How are you, Christine? Thanks for joining me. I am great. Thanks for having me, Pete. Certainly. So, uh, first off, I guess... Uh, you, you talk about in this piece and in your work, and I, I want to get to uh, the larger body of work that you do, but the uh, in this particular op-ed, you, you talk about why so many perpetrators uh, don't get prosecuted or don't see any jail time. So kind of break that down for us. Well, there's a couple reasons there, Pete. One is going to be, it's really like the stigma behind sexual assault, that good old boy mentality we have. Um, women just don't go through and they don't think they're going to have prosecution. Um, and the ones that are courageous enough to go in and, and go through a same nurse exam, um, which is indignant in itself, it's re-traumatizing, right? Being violated in every place possible to collect the evidence. We, um, as a society, you know, as, as a place that has over 3,000 entities keeping track of our Big Mac um, value meal at McDonald's, right? <laughs> we have all these entities governing every piece of um, paper and cardboard and pickle and <laughs> in a, in a, in a, in a value mill for McDonald's. And we're not using that same kind of technology, um, that we have absolutely fluid today to, to ensure that, um, the sexual assault kits are, are what we would consider smart kitted, um, with electronic tracking. So there's approval chain of custody, um, and that all information is kind of streamlined and kept track of. I mean, there are states like Texas that doesn't even keep track of blood and urine. Well, now, like, hmm. really? <laughs> right. So this is, you're talking about um, barcodes, ARFID tags, yeah, yeah, software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we're doing it with all these things. And if we can keep track of the kit and we standardize the kit, if we're using this to keep track of, you know, our flowers that we send, if we're doing this to keep track of our, our Happy Meals at McDonald's, why can't we do this as, over something as sacred, you know, as a sexual assault kit? Um, so these are called rape. These are called the yeah sexual assault kits, rape kits. North Carolina has a, a pretty lengthy history with the backlogs that yeah, uh, we're <laughs> yeah we're supposed to have been cleared out, and then we're totally cleared out. But then the next guy got in and was like, oh, they're not cleared out, and then he promised to clear them out. And as I understand it, they're still not cleared out. The backlog of rape kits, uh, and but there are real chain of custody issues that arise all over. There are. There are, and, and, you know, there's, there's no cross-pollination. So if we had smart kitting, right, this electronic barcode where we're keeping track, not only the kits and, and, and the components thereof, you know, like the, the, you know, the, the evidence, if you will, but it's not really evidence until, you know, the judge approved it. So we're going to call it components, um, in this, this phase as we're collecting the, the, the tissue samples, et cetera, for the kits. Um, when we, <laughs> rapist rape, Right, mm-hmm. racists don't have just one victim, right? Generally, <laughs> and so and so generally they progress, especially when they know there's no consequences. They get get away with it. There's there's kind of that that high, if you will, right? 
most women don't go and speak out. Most of them believe that they're not going to get justice if they mess with it anyway. They hear all the stories about the backlog. When we have solutions, we could standardize the process, right? When we standardize the kits, what we're keeping track of, and have a uniform thing. We're also having cross-pollination and communication with law enforcement districts. There are 18,000 law enforcement divisions in the United States of America, and they do not talk to each other. So one of the other problems you talk about is that a lot of these uh, assaults don't ever actually get reported to the police. So you, you say 25 percent. Da- yeah. So down you say Florida has just a 25 percent chance of ever being reported uh, uh, sexual assault down there. Is that comparable, do you know, to uh, to the U.S., to North Carolina? Is that is that a I, fairly I normal number? I think it's a pretty comparable across across the board in in the country, um, just because victims they don't believe they've seen enough cases not get justice, right? And I mean, if we're not even keeping track of the kid, well, if they're not being processed, if, you know, people listen to the news. When the people have the courage, when victims have the courage to go to make a report, go through the same nurse exam to to collect the information for the kit, right? As we're talking about. You know, that is a courageous thing, and, and I think it is a disservice to, to general citizens that they think that the system works, the process works, and that kid is being treated as sacred. And I think the backlog is evidence that that is absolutely an, an untruth. So we're creating a false narrative of, of justice even being possible in so many cases. And, and so when we have 25% of victims that don't even mess with the system, I mean, those are reasons why. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's talk a little bit about how uh, uh, about your work outside of this op ed and how you sort of got into this area of expertise, dare I call it. Um, you're the you're an author. You're an advocate for victims of human trafficking and sexual assault. You're, are you still out of Kansas City? Um, I do. I am. Well, I'm in St. Louis. I, I kind of dual residence. I've got a place in St. Louis, a place in Kansas City, and I travel all over, of course, and, and do advocacy work. So, but yeah, I'm in Missouri. Let's just say that. Okay. And so you um, you were a, a victim of human trafficking as well for like 20 I years. I, I was. 21 years. Um, never identified. And, and you know, if, um, you know, one of the intersectionalities I think we don't think about, it's really hard to prosecute a trafficker in a trafficking case. A lot of that is the victims and trauma. Um, by the time it goes to court, you know, it, we don't have enough time to educate a jury on, on trauma, right? Um, so the victim is scared, the trafficker's there, so now, you know, it's just, there's all this minutia, right? And traffickers know this. So they'll say, hmm, we'll just take this to trial because they know they're probably not going to get convicted. Um, and the, the victim is going to get scared in the time that they're waiting because trials don't happen quickly, right? Or yeah. the victim's going to get scared or, 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 or the jury's not going to believe the victim because a trauma-impacted victim is, is sometimes not always the most convincing victim. And so traffickers know this. And so what happens a lot of times in these cases in the judiciary process um, is uh, the prosecutors will say, hey, we can go after forcible rape. We have some some evidence here. We can use this. We can go in and we can plead with the trafficker. You know, we'll give him 10 years. He'll do five, maybe six, but at least he'll be behind bars. And, and traffickers know that that plea is a lot better than risking 20 to life at a jury trial if he happens to be convicted. Mm -hmm. And so we oftentimes use forcible rape as a conviction for a trafficker. And so that's another reason. And and traffickers are are like rapists. They have multiple victims. 
Well, and so what do you make then of the, the, the you know, the, the highly publicized case of Jeffrey Epstein, uh, what, Ghislaine Maxwell, right? She gets convicted. But, like, one of the questions I keep hearing is, how did she get convicted on all of these counts, and yet not a single perpetrator is it has, has been identified? I know, right? Um, because we, we, we want to protect those people of privilege. I mean, it's really sad. Um, it's tragic, and I know it's not the most favorable response, but, you know, people protect money, money, you know, money buys safety sometimes. I mean, it's the same reason why in trafficking, oftentimes buyers don't get held accountable. The people paying for these kiddos don't, in, in the real world of trafficking, and we'll think about something not as glamorous as the Epstein case, it's such high profile, let's talk about regular trafficking victims in the United States. The buyers don't get held accountable. That's why the traffickers don't mind going and recruiting our vulnerable and selling them for profit because nobody holds the buyers accountable. And until we start holding the men accountable um, for paying for people, traffickers are always going to be creating new victims and, and, and profiting off of them. Um, and, and so that's tragic. I spent 21 years being bought and sold, and, and nobody identified. Both of my traffickers will die in prison. Um, somebody, you know, the gal that replaced me when I exited had the, had the courage, you know, to testify. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's great. I didn't have that kind of courage. Mm. Um, and so that happened years later after I exited that I, 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 I learned that, that they're both going to prison, but you know, in the midst of that, you know, the crime itself is, is created that you're kind of front and center and they're kind of protected. Um, so, it, you know, that, that's, that's justice that not everybody gets to see. Yeah. Right. Um, and so in 21 years being bought and sold when I, um, exited, um, you know, I made it my commitment, you know, we have to educate law enforcement. We have to educate communities. We have to educate churches. We have to educate schools and teachers. We have to have the opportunity to identify me as a victim and potentially recover me. And they did it. And so um, I've made it my commitment. Nobody should have to go through what I went through for as long as I did, the pain and the horrific things that I endured, um, and, and to have to live with the with the residual effects for the rest of my life, you know, the trauma that came with that, um, the the barriers from that, you know, I have a criminal record. It limits my job opportunities. That's why I became an author, right? It's uh, We live in America, so entrepreneurship, right? Yeah. I'll create my own path. Y'all don't want me around, but you say I'm a victim. So I'm a victim, right, until I try to, like, get a job above minimum wage, right? <laughs> I'm a victim until I try to apply for life, law school and get turned down because I'm a felon. Mm-hmm. from an experience in my trafficking yeah. um, when I was being trafficked. And so um, there's there's all these residual effects I don't think people think about that really cost um, our community as a whole a lot of money. Um, and, so um, and if people want to... cause causes family breakdowns. Yeah, and if people want to learn more about you and your story, they can go to christinespeaksministry.com. That's the website I got for you. Is there, And you've got uh, a film coming out, I believe, right? I Will Rise, a film about your out. life? It's called I Will Rise. It's going to be um, available to the public here in the next few months. Right now it's on a festival run. And both of my books are Cry Purple and Same Kind of Human. And you can always follow me on Instagram, christinespeaksministry. Um, and um, YouTube and all those other great platforms. Well, I appreciate you taking time uh, with us today to share the story and some of this background information. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. All right, you too. That is uh, Christine McDonald. News Talk 1110, 99.3 WBT. 
Pete Callender Show. I'm Pete. Uh, and that's Callender with a K and then an A. Give me an L. Give me an I. You can also uh, email Pete at thepetecallendershow.com and uh, follow me on Twitter at Pete Callender, uh, where I ask the important questions, like why was AOC wearing a coat when she got fake arrested? I don't know. It's July in Washington, D.C. Why are you wearing a coat? Anyway, um, North Carolina, there's a website called endthebacklog.org, endthebacklog.org. This is about uh, rape kits, the testing of the rape kits, and other types of reforms. Uh, They have six pillars that they have. Uh, Statewide inventory, that you have a recurring inventory. North Carolina has that. Uh, That they test new kits. Yes, North Carolina tests all newly collected kits. Uh, They have a tracking system in use. Uh, And the state has allocated uh, funding, albeit one-time funding, but for... uh, for uh, clearing the backlog and for improving the system. So those are a couple of the, uh, the pillars that North Carolina has met. Um, North Carolina does not have what they call the victim's right to know. They have not granted victims the right to notice and to be informed on the status of their kits. Um, and then the other one that North Carolina has been battling for, gosh, I don't know, well, since Roy Cooper was attorney general and he was in charge of the state crime lab, the backlog. The state has committed to testing its backlogged kits. But, you know, Roy Cooper said that he cleared those out. He said he cleared the backlog out when he ran against Pat McCrory. So that was, what, 2016. And then, of course, Josh Stein says that he's working to clear the backlog out. Well, how could he have cleared the backlog? Or how could he be working to do that if Roy Cooper already did it? And according to this website, which is according to sources at the North Carolina Department of Justice... There are more than 11,000 untested kits still in North Carolina. Still. And uh, I don't know. Maybe it's going to take another election cycle for people to ask Josh Stein about this. I don't know. Uh, But that tends to be sort of the cycle. We have to wait every four years for this issue to be brought to the attention of the attorney general. So we shall see. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Saw uh, on WBTV, down the hall. Uh, uh-oh. I didn't do it. All right, sorry. There was a CMPD officer that just walked by the door. Literally. I'm not kidding. That's not. This is not a bit. I'm telling you. He was on his way. They were walking him down. I don't know what's going on. I just put my hands behind my back. Just do the fake perp walk. That it, what? Yeah, yeah, with a raised fist in the air. As I, I don't understand, too. So I don't understand AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She, you know, got, quote, arrested at the, uh, at the protest yesterday. Uh, totally not a PR stunt that all of these members of Congress got arrested because they wouldn't get out of the street. Totally not a PR stunt. Totally not a Moral Monday rehash. Uh, and if you're new to North Carolina, Moral Monday was what happened when the Democratic Party was so gutted Uh, after their electoral defeats and just the mountains of scandal that they had, uh, that had sent a lot of their leaders to prison. And so uh, the the party was a shell of itself and and, literally about to uh, be kicked out of their headquarters in Raleigh. It was so bad, Senator Kay Hagan used the Wake County Democrat Party 
in order to organize her reelection campaign, which did not go very well. She lost to Tom Tillis. That's how bad the Democrat Party was, uh, that organization. They had had multiple executive directors that had been uh, fired or had to resign amid scandal, like uh, sexual harassment and that sort of thing. Anyway, Moral Monday then stepped into the breach, as Reverend William Barber likes to say, repairers of the breach. Well, there's this big gaping hole where the Democrat Party organization used to be. They could not do anything. They couldn't uh, uh, mobilize people. They couldn't raise money. It was just very bad for them. This was like 08, 09 timeframe. They then lose the House and Senate in in 2010. Uh, Bev Perdue, then she's like, I'm out. And then uh, Pat McCrory gets in and they start doing these Moral Monday marches every Monday. And they modeled it after the Wisconsin takeover of the General Assembly. Remember all of that? Over the unionization stuff. So they did the thing. They replicated it here. And Barber would every single Monday go down there and do these PR stunts and the media would go down and dutifully cover them. And the, quote, movement grew and grew and grew, largely because teachers hadn't gotten raises in a very long time. And uh, thank you, Democrats. They froze the pay, eliminated step pay increases and all of that. They and, and fired a whole bunch of furloughed a whole bunch of teachers during the Great Recession. And um, and so then the Republicans take over and Reverend Barber sort of this uh, this avatar for the Democrat Party, supported by all of the left-wing organizations, part of the Blueprint NC uh, constellation of leftist organizations. And so everybody just poured into the the MOMO, as I call it, the Moral Monday movement, and, uh, and every Monday they would march. And then they would go into the General Assembly. They would act like buffoons. They would scream and yell and chant and play drums and dress up like giant genitalia, and uh, they would get themselves arrested. And, and then I'm supposed to be like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they got arrested. That's like the media, the tone of the media coverage. No, I, that's what they went for. I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised they got arrested. That was the intent. The point was to get arrested and then say, look at us. We're civil rights leaders like the 60s who got arrested in that movement. They, they, they were very overt about what they were trying to do. And media, again, dutifully provided that coverage. And when the teachers got their raises that the Republicans had said we were going to do, and they they did, then all of a sudden the Moral Monday movement kind of dissipated because they were using all of the teachers union, all the 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 uh, you know the troops in this show of force. Oh yeah, they it's like more than a thousand people got arrested. It was every single week, and they would go out to a news conference on Friday saying we're going to march on Monday, and then they do a news conference over the weekend. And, So they just kept getting all this coverage, and that was the Momo. So that's what we saw yesterday. It was a mini Momo. It was a, yeah, it was a a meme, a meme Momo. It was it was smaller, right? Because the whole point was to just get certain people arrested for the cameras. Ilan Omar, AOC, Alma Adams, who was a former, she's a North Carolina congresswoman, former state legislator. So this is from the playbook. So, no, I, I I don't find it to be courageous. You you, you got process, too. You, and what I learned in the Momo was that nobody even ever went to jail for that stuff. They just went in, got processed, and turned around and released. And then most of them had all the charges dropped. There's like, So it raises this question, is that really even a protest? Is it, if there's no risk involved, is it really that... Is it really that courageous of a protest? Is it even a protest at all? It's kind of like the people who lay down on the ground and they do their die-in protest. You've seen these things, right? The die-ins. 
Because it's not a sit-in. It's a die-in. So we're going to lay down. Like, literally the least you can do. That is literally the least you can do as a form of protest to just basically lay down on the floor and not move. I'm not doing anything. I'm just, I'm just here. I'm just laying on the ground in protest. Really? Is that protest? Because when a child lays on the ground, usually they're kicking and screaming as the form of protest. You could at least flail about a little bit, right? I would think. Maybe bang your hands and, you know, clenched fists onto the ground, kick your legs at the same time. Something like that. I don't know. Anyway, AOC gets arrested, gets processed, wearing the latest technology in uh, zip ties. These are the invisible zip ties. You don't even see them. They're, it's like they're not even there. And they, they apparently, uh, they may be, what, expandable or stretchable or something? Because it allows you to raise one of your hands in a raised fist, you know, power to us kind of way as you're marched, uh, marched away. And then, you, and then she puts her hands back behind her back. Now, there was a law enforcement officer that had his hand on her arm and he was kind of walking her and, and another woman who was not zip tied at all, I could, as far as I could tell, but they are invisible. So uh, the, and so he's walking these two uh, down the street and he's he's holding her by the arm. And then you see Representative Ilan Omar and uh, she didn't even get the police escort. She's walking with her hands back behind her back like she's cuffed with the invisible zip ties, but she doesn't even get the law enforcement uh, perp walk. She didn't even get the full. She didn't get the full package. Now I don't know if that's like a, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, a, is there a different rate for that that you have to pay in order to get the full perp walk for the photo op or not? I'm not sure. Maybe it's Islamophobia. Just want to throw that out there. Could be Islamophobia, right? He didn't. He didn't give her the same level of service that he gave AOC. So AOC got a much better photo op. Omar just looks like she's walking in deep thought. Right? She's got her hands behind her back, and she's kind of shuffling along the street, making her way over to the shaded area so she can be, quote, processed and released. Um, And AOC was wearing a coat. And I don't understand why she's wearing a coat. In July, in D.C., maybe she wanted something with long sleeves so it would cover the zip ties. I don't know. I'm not really sure. No, So, yeah, so the thing about Ilan Omar being... Uh, in deep thought, uh, like I say that, it, but that's what it looked like. But then, of course, you realize, right, that it's it's Ilan Omar, and so it's not happening. All right. So what was I saying? Right. I was talking about this WBTV story, and then I saw a Charlotte Mecklenburg police officer walked down the hallway towards WBTV. That then got me talking about whether I was going to get arrested. And then that got me onto AOC and Ilan Omar getting arrested. So I apologize, went down the rabbit hole there. But BTV has a story, Brandon Hamilton reporting low bonds for violent offenders. Not a new issue in Mecklenburg County. Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Chief Johnny Jennings talking with the TV station. And uh, he said he had an opportunity to join the governor and police chiefs from across the state. Um, They had a discussion on current challenges in policing. I expressed my concern for our current bond hearing and setting processes. 
and the need for bail reform to change violent crime in our communities. We have to hold these criminals accountable for their actions. I agree. You know what I also would like to do? I'd like to hold the Democrat judges accountable for their actions as well. And to that end, I am grateful for Mecklenburg County District Attorney Spencer uh, Merriweather, who's also quoted in this piece as agreeing with Jennings and says um, there's a solution that he is pushing called preventative detention. He says it's already in use in federal courts. It basically says that we're not going to mess around with the dollar figure and determine whether or not somebody stays in custody. That's not going to be the determination. We're going to say that if you're a danger to the community, you stay in custody until your trial. And if you're not, then you'll you'll be released. Instead of doing the bail and the money and all that, just say, are you a danger? Then you're staying in jail. Allowing violent criminals to bond out, walk the streets, he says, impacts cases. Time after time after time after time when people have been released after committing a violent crime that has an effect on witnesses. It has an effect on victims. who We're expecting them to testify to keep communities safe. But if they see the people walking the streets the very next day, that has an impact. And so I applaud Spencer Merriweather. I applaud Chief Jennings for making these arguments, but also for putting out these press releases. I have the latest batch. They're, they're good about this. They send out, like I have three of them, three sheets, uh, all from yesterday. Uh, Mecklenburg County DA's felony special victims team tried two defendants during its latest trial session in Superior Court. Uh, they got a guilty verdict in the case of a man who raped a 13-year-old girl. His name was Dimitri Dale, 24. Uh, He was charged with statutory rape of a child 15 or younger, two counts of indecent liberties. He met the victim at a national conference that the victim attended with her church. He began communicating with her on social media. He then left his home in Florida, traveled to Charlotte, picked her up, uh, sexually assaulted her. She was 13 at the time, and uh, she now is 18 and uh, according to the DA's office, showed incredible bravery at trial, particularly as she was cross-examined on the witness stand by her rapist who chose to represent himself. Good on the jury, too, uh, for convicting him. Um, do, 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 where is, oh, also, Bijan Cole, Bijan Cole, 28. He was tried for intimidating a witness. While deliberating, uh, while the jury was deliberating, he decided to enter a guilty plea. Judge Lisa Bell sentenced him to 14 to 26 months in prison, but that got suspended pending his successful completion of 24 months of supervised probation, and you're not allowed to have contact with the victim. So what does that mean? You're going to hear this phrase a lot. Suspended. Sentence was suspended pending his successful completion of supervised probation. So what does that mean? You got a prison sentence, but you're on probation. So you're not going to prison unless you screw up on your probation. Jorge Gutierrez Flores, 44, pled guilty to statutory rape of a child 15 years or younger. He got sentenced by Judge Bell to 144 to 233 months in prison. So that's over 10 years. Uh, No probation for him. Thank God. Robert Thorne, 42, pleaded guilty. Second-degree kidnapping, assault on a female as well. He got 29 to 47 months in prison. Habitual felon found with cocaine hidden in his underwear. He got convicted of drug trafficking. Must have been a lot of cocaine in the underpants. Uh, 60 to 84 months, jury trial. 
Eric Frazier, 28, pled guilty to possession of a firearm by a convicted felon and misdemeanor carrying a concealed weapon. Judge Irvin, uh, this would be Robert Irvin, uh, he sent he sentenced this guy 24, 38 months in prison, suspended, pending successful completion of 36 months of supervised probation. As a condition of the probation, though, he has to serve 90 days in custody. Oh, isn't that neat? So you get 24 to 38 months in prison, but you actually only go to prison for 90 days. And that's just custody. So it may not even be prison. It might just be jail. And by the way, this is this is repeated possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. Judge Lisa Bell. Gave him supervised probation. Here's another one. Possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. Judge Bell sentenced him 9 to 20 months in prison, but suspended pending 18 months of unsupervised probation. Why are they letting all of these gun criminals out? 